0: Now this morning we are coming toward the close of the book of Joshua and we have one more lesson next Sunday. So we're going to see some things that are very important as Joshua summarizes what has taken place and then uh, gives us some word looking toward the future. You remember last Sunday we talked about taking action against the remaining Canaanites in the land. We talked about prosecuting accidents and we talked about investigating accusations that was a good lesson for me last sunday the cities of refuge this morning we see joshua's farewell to leadership the leadership in the nation suppose you were a keynote speaker at a large gathering of all of the evangelical leaders in the world maybe the international congress for world evangelization And you were going to tell them what they needed to know because you sensed that this would be your last opportunity to speak to such a group because you felt like you'd soon be departing this planet. And so you want to give them the very important matters that would be on your heart whereby they might continue to do the work of the church after you're gone. You wouldn't want to give them anything too negative or get on about what they hadn't been doing because it might be discouraging to them. So you might start off with recognizing that all all that God had done for the church in your lifetime and their lifetime. Now, sometimes in the United States, it doesn't look like God is doing much for the church. But around the world, God is busy. And He is busy in some places here in the United States, and we trust this would be one of them. You might want to review their responsibility for the continued success of the church. There are some things that we need to be doing. You might want to be sure to give the reasons for God's requirements and maybe a little warning about what He says will happen if we don't do our responsibility as Christians here at the church time. You might remind them of God's past faithfulness and the danger of allowing His blessing to become a barrier to the future fulfillment of his promises if we grow complacent and say, well, the Lord's always done it and his blessings are just flowing and we don't really bear down to get the job done with what he has told us to do. This is exactly what Joshua is going to be saying to the leadership of the land this morning. Joshua chapter 23 and verse 1. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all of their enemies on every side and Joshua was old and advanced in years. Joshua is an elderly man now. It has been 20 years since they entered the promised land. He's been busy. The land has been conquered and the strength of the enemy has been broken. But calm seas can be dangerous. Beware calm seas never made a skillful mariner joshua knows that and god knows that calm seas never made a skillful mariner. so there may be some things to be said here and as joshua begins to listen to the reports from around the nation he realizes that the people are growing complacent they're kind of settling down with the remaining canaanites that god has said must go Joshua knew what he had to do call the leadership of the land together and read the riot act to these guys and let them know exactly what God's opinion is of what's going on in the land how would we know God's opinion oh it's written down in the book you remember back when Moses was the leader there was a book and we were writing things down in the book and it's all there so we can know what God wanted. Now it came about, verse 2, I trust you have your Bibles there in Joshua 23, it came about that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in years. Now this meeting probably took place at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was located in that day. First, he's going to take time for a little recollection of victory of everything God has done. So these verses 3 through 5, he's going to be looking back at the past. And we need to be sure that we do that so that we could remember. You remember at the first battle there coming in, the battle at Rephidim against the Amalekites. God told Joshua, write this down in the book and recite it to the people so they can remember God's faithfulness. I trust that you're writing things down with your family of what God is doing so that you can remember and little ones coming along can understand when they get older what God has done and what He's doing. Verses 3 through 5. You've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes. "...with all the nations which I have cut off, from the Jordan even to the great sea, toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, He shall thrust them out from before you, and drive them from before you, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you." Now, if you wanted to look at an extensive documentation of everything that God had done, it's back in, ver- in, in chapter 12 of Joshua. And he names all the cities and the nations that have been conquered as Joshua is leading the people into the land. You would have to understand that it's only because of God's grace that these people are there. It's only because of God's grace that we're here in the church. But God uh, is speaking through Joshua who knows there is a grave danger in the land. What would that danger be? We're going to find out because we'd say there is grave danger in the church today. So we see the responsibility for continued success. Now we're moving from the past to the present. We have looked back at the past and evaluated that. Now we want to interpret what's going on now and what's going on now in our church. We see the description of success in your chapter in verses 6 and 8 and 11. And then each of those is followed by a reason for that success. And that would be verses 7, 9 and 10, and then 12 through 13. Now, Warren Wiersbe gives us an interesting statement as he writes about this passage. See if you would agree with it. What God does for his people depends often on what the people do for god is this work salvation well no this is christian living god can do anything he wants to do at any time and he does do that according to the purpose of his will he works all things according to the counsel of his will but he gives us some instructions by which if we follow those we will be successful in life and his purposes for his kingdom will be successful. We may not be able to follow them perfectly, but God intends for us, enabled through the power of the Spirit, to give it our best shot. And when we stumble, get up, get back on track, and move forward. How would be Israel's only way of gaining success, continued success, and how would they be able to deal with these pockets of enemies in the land? let's take a look in your bible there if you have it and let's quickly see what the emphasis is verse three all the lord has god has done to these nations verse four i've appointed to you these nations verse four again with all the nations verse seven do not associate with these nations verse nine great and strong nations the lord has driven them out verse twelve uh if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations verse 13 the lord your god will not continue to drive out these nations there is an emphasis on these nations mentioned seven times in the chapter now what does that represent what does that tell us there's a reason god has said to these people coming into the promised land We've got to get rid of these nations. We've got to get rid of these people. Now, today, we know the gospel is for all nations. And we're going to them. The nations are not our enemy. Our enemies today would be ideas, thoughts, ideologies that the enemy raises up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive those thoughts to the obedience of Christ. Uh, we may be fighting in the United States. We may be fighting against uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein's army. But in the church, we're not fighting against his army with guns and weapons. We're trying to infiltrate his army with the gospel. And that's what we're trying to do with nations all over the world. But in the Old Testament, the nation is the channel of redemption. So we have to keep the nation pure. What's the only way for us to achieve success in evangelism, discipleship, all of the work that god has given us to do well i think it would be to deal with the remaining vestiges of sin in the camp both personal and corporate now there would be a good reason for that god likes to work through clean vessels do we have that in the new testament paul tells timothy in a large house There are articles not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. You might have a beautiful vase for flowers. You may have a garbage can over here made out of wood. Some for noble purposes, some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, that's from the ignoble, he'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to his master, and prepared to do every good work. And then we're reminded in Proverbs, remove the dross from the silver and out comes material for the silversmith. So we want to do our best with God's grace to clean things up, to be a cleansed vessel that God might be able to use. Now, Jesus breaks the power of sin in our lives, but we're responsible for the cleanup operation, utilizing the power that his spirit supplies our enemy knows that he might be able to knock out a christian through a massive barrage where he just attacks on a weekend and bam and this guy suddenly becomes a raging militant atheist but that's pretty unusual isn't it that's not the enemy's usual plan for us he may knock out somebody like that who's been a believer But that will usually come through immorality. And it would usually be a buildup of that through moral impurity so that you could know that that's coming. But Satan has a plan for us. He wants to infiltrate our thinking, our reading, our listening, our teaching with ideas that are simply not true according to Scripture. He wants us to have false ideas about worship, about sin, about forgiveness of sin, about God's grace, about all kinds of things that we see prevalent in a modern day today. He'd like to sow a little seeds of doubt. Has God really said that you can't eat any of the fruit of the trees in this whole garden? As God really said, you shall not have any fun, but you shall wear burlap shirts and skirts, and you shall eat bread and water except on fast days. Then you don't get anything. Now that's what the enemy would want us to think, that we've got all these requirements we're supposed to do, and it's just a burden. And, but Jesus said, my yoke is not burdensome we got to get this thing figured out. we got to get it correct. That must have been what the Canaanites said to the Israelites. You've got to do what? Well, we don't have to do any of that in our religion. In our religion, you can let the good times roll. All you have to do is worship nature, sacrifice a child occasionally, and just relax and enjoy yourself. And that stuff called, y'all call immorality, we can enjoy that even at church. That's what the Canaanites are saying to God's people. Do you think it will fly? Yes. Yes, in fact. First Kings 11. I think Wolfie mentioned this when uh, he was teaching several weeks ago. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's, uh, besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You shall not intermarry with them, but they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines. His wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. That's one of the most tragic passages in the Bible to me. This is the wisest guy who ever lived. Where does that leave us? Now, we don't have it on the uh, PowerPoint, but if you're in the Bible, in 1 Kings 11, it tells that he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord fully. What do you think the Lord's response to that would be? Well, it tells us. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And you know what Solomon did? He built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable God of Moab, on a hill east of Jerusalem. This is God's holy city. We're talking about where the temple is. And then not only that, but uh, he built uh, an altar to Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives. And they burned incense and they offered sacrifices to their gods. And unfortunately, some of those were human sacrifices. Even archaeology tells us that. But that's what was going on among the Canaanite nations. And that's the reason God said, you've got to get rid of these people in that day. Because if you don't, they're going to make you stumble. Would there be anything that we need to be careful to get rid of, lest we stumble? Well, we'll try to find out. Now, someone said, well, now wait a minute, that's the Old Testament. Uh, We're living in New Testament days. Well, there is a book in the New Testament that Bible scholars say would be the New Testament counterpart of the Old Testament book of Joshua. And that would be the book of Ephesians. And one day, Paul, later in his life, he sees the end in view. He calls the elders of the church in ephesus and they come down to the waterfront where he just stopped by there one of his trips and he is addressing them in the book of acts and this would be acts chapter 20 and verse 28 and here's what paul says same position as joshua he's got the leaders there and he says be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the holy spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of god which he purchased with his own blood I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise as speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. He gave the same warning to young Timothy, a pastor. We're studying Bible study on Wednesday evening, 2 Timothy 2.15. And Paul has just said, the day of my departure is at hand. Do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like cancer. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philatus, who have wandered away from the truth. It's so easy to wander away from the truth. Sometimes we might wonder, why are we always talking about Bible doctrine and this and that? And Well, because it's easy to wander away from it. Then he warns them again about false teachers in chapter 3. You probably remember that one in the last days men will come lovers of themselves lovers of pleasure having a form of religion but denying the power thereof he gives a good warning that's paul's warning let's take a look at joshua's warning first requirement if we're going to do our responsibility if we're back in israel be very firm then to keep and do all that's written in the book the book of the law of moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Now, that's the, book, that's the only part of the book they had back then. The reason for that is, in order that you may not associate with the nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Could Israel be so foolish as to begin worshiping the gods of the very nations that they had soundly defeated. Could they be that foolish? That would be like the United States determining that we want to be communist after President Reagan has won the Cold War and the Berlin Wall is torn down. Now we want to become communist. That would be kind of crazy. Do you think that could happen? I know what the first step would be. Get any mention of God out of public life and out of the educational system. And then take incremental little steps towards socialism, where the government makes all the decisions and they're in control of everything. Uh, You'll be there in due time. The federal state will become your God, just like it was in communist Russia. Well, that's the first requirement. You've got to get rid of these false teachers and these ideas that are flowing through that don't match up with the Bible. Then the second requirement, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. And the reason, for the Lord God has driven out great and strong nations from before you, and as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts a thousand to flight, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised. Now, is that just hyperbole? One man puts a thousand to flight? Well, no. Many times in the Old Testament, God would rout a huge army through a few men, just like he did with Joshua. 300 men, and they take 135,000 Midianites. God can do that. He wants us to know, as with Isaac's birth, that he's the one doing this. And he likes to work in impossible situations. So if you have an impossible situation, you can count on the Lord. He knows all about it. Cling to the Lord. How do you do that? I'll give you a hint. It has to do with what you think about. That's the reason God says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the reason He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you had a, a record of everything you thought about for 24 hours, what part would God occupy now we have business and we have things to do but in the time when you don't have to be thinking about anything else what part are you thinking about the Lord that'd be an indication if we're clinging to him well third requirement we'll talk some more about what that means third requirement so take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God Oh, I'm glad we got to that one, because we know all about that one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The reason? <clears throat> for if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish, from off this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. Important question. How would the Israelites know if they were being careful to love the Lord their God? Now you can go back to the first requirement in verse 6. And I think it gives us an excellent answer to that. Whether or not they were keeping and doing all that was written in the book. In the law of Moses for them, so that they would not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. In other words, obedience. Obedience is a good measure to know if we are careful to love the Lord our God. But that's the Old Testament Mosaic Law. How would we know that we're making a conscientious effort to be diligent about loving the Lord our God? Well, it's coming in our First John series, but here it is. 1 John five, three, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. Now that's half of it right there according to what we've been told by Jesus. What is the other half? Previous verse. 1 John 5.2 By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Love God and love others. That's the whole law as Jesus said. How do we know when we're doing that? By whether or not we're keeping His commandments. That's the measure here. It's not good feelings. It's not good works. It's not doctrinal profundity. It's not denominational integrity, although those things would be nice if we had them. We would like to have all those things. But it is obedience. That's the bottom line. Now, Christopher... um, read this verse i don't want you to think we're ganging up on you i didn't know he was using this verse but samuel said as the lord is much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the lord behold to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams now contrast that with a modern interpretation you don't have to obey anything we're under law Uh, excuse me we're not under law we're under grace If anybody says you have to obey anything, they're bogged down in legalism and they're a false teacher. So just relax. There are no requirements. There's nothing you have to do. Now that's true if you're talking about salvation, hold up the empty hands of faith. But if you're talking about Christian living, there are some things that we can do that God says will ensure success. Somebody says we're not capable of obeying God. I'm not so sure about that. Here is uh, Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness. If we're passionate in our pursuit of personal holiness, the first thing we must establish is that holiness is possible. It sounds humble to say, I cannot obey God for one nanosecond in my life, but it's not true. Acting like holiness is out of reach for ordinary Christians doesn't do justice to the way the Bible speaks about people like Zechariah and Elizabeth who were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It doesn't take seriously the Lord's commendation of Job as a blameless and upright man. And he goes on to say, likewise, Jesus teaches that the wise person hears his words and does them. James says the same thing. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, we're not talking about perfect obedience because we're not capable of obeying perfectly, but that's where some people get hung up. Can't obey at all if I can't obey perfectly. Oh, yes, we can obey. And we're told to be holy even as God was holy. With God's grace, we can obey. And that's the good news of grace. He enables us to do what He's called us to do. When we come to Christ in repentance, true repentance, and saving faith then we're given grace to be able to keep his commandments and when we stumble and fall we're given forgiveness unless we're just plain confused like the rich young ruler and we think we've kept the commandments perfectly since the days of our youth you remember that guy here's an interesting verse first corinthians nine twenty-one: to those not having the law that's the heathens paul i paul became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law." Now, what's he saying? He's saying when he preaches to the heathen, he tries to agree with them as much as he can to gain their confidence, but he still has to keep Christ's law. He can't start participating in these sacrifices offered to idols and go to the temple and so forth. He doesn't want to do that because he doesn't want to violate Christ's law. And he doesn't want to be a stumbling block to anyone else who might think he's eating meat sacrificed to idols. So it's a good thing God has given us his grace, but he's still given us some guidelines by which we can measure our love for him. Here's Dr. Albert Barnes commenting on that verse, 1 Corinthians 9, 21. This passage would destroy all the refuge of the antinomians. Those are those who say there is no law. You don't have to pay attention to any of it. Whatever privileges I'm quoting, whatever privileges the gospel has introduced, it has not set us free from the restraints and obligations of law. That's binding still, and no man is at liberty to disregard the moral law of God. Christ came to magnify and strengthen and to honor the law, not to destroy it. And you can look in history and you can see those from nations that claimed to be a Christian nation but disregarded the law and you can see what happened to them. Now Alan Redpath describes what happens in the life of a Christian or a Christian church when love grows cold. It's called apostasy, turning away from the faith. And we'll close with this and we'll run through these quickly. First, defeat Joshua 23:13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. God has won all these victories. If he withdraws his power, it means certain defeat. We're going to see that. In fact, Joshua is a link to the rest of the Old Testament. Because in the rest of the Old Testament, they're going to do exactly what he told them not to do. And then they're going to suffer for it, the defeat and the discomfort that comes. And then they're going to cry out to God. And then he's going to send a judge to deliver them. And then we're going to start the whole cycle over and over again. A hundred years from now. Well, let's just say things are moving more rapidly. Uh, Forty years from now, what will be happening in this building? What will be being taught in this building 40 years from now? You can look at some churches that were teaching the truth 40 years ago and today... They're not teaching the truth at all. We've got to be sure that we're on target with what he's saying. Now, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, all things God wants us to do, unless we quench the Spirit. If we quench the Spirit, that's kind of like putting out a fire. How do we put out a fire? Well, we pour water on it, cover it up with dirt, or we remove the fuel from the fire, take the logs off the campfire, and that's exactly what false teachers do in the church they pour cold water on good biblical doctrine and then they bring a lot of dirt corruption to put on top of whatever's there and then soon the spirit is quenched because the fuel is the word and they like to remove the word and move on to the reader's digest or something Uh, number two discomfort Joshua twenty three thirteen 13 again. They shall be a snare and a trap to you and a whip out for your side and thorns in your eyes. Now, I wouldn't mind getting a few thorns picking blackberries, but not in my eyes. There may be some pleasure in just propping up your feet spiritually, kind of taking life easy there, let somebody else do the work of the church. There might be some pleasure in enjoying worldly, sensual entertainment for a while. Oh, it can be some fun. Sin can be fun. But then when the crop comes in, that temptation that we have coveted and coddled becomes a thorn in our side. And the Christian who compromises later on becomes unhappy. That's just the way it is. It may be later on in life. But there's a day of regret coming when you are a true Christian. Discomfort. We don't want that discomfort. The last one disgrace verse 16 the anger of the lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land he has given you Do you know the world loves disgrace in the church better than anything else when disgrace comes to the church because then they can say see those pious hypocrites they're worse than we are we don't even do that kind of stuff and look what they're doing down there at the church that guy's a member of such such church and they like that, and the enemy likes that because that weakens the message. So what is the remedy? We've got three quick remedies, again, following Alan Redpath pretty closely here. Well, we know the first one, obedience. Do all that's written in the book. That's the same thing Moses told Joshua 20 years earlier when they're coming into the land. But like we said, that word has to be passed down from generation to generation. Son is not going to do it unless dad does it son is not going to do it just because the pastor does it just because the sunday school teacher does it it's going to have to be something that is real in the life of the family so we encourage you be doers of the word not hearers only demonstrate your love for god and others through obedience number two separation in order that you may not associate with these nations which remain among you Or mention the name of their God. Swear to them. Bow down before them. Cling to the Lord your God as you've done to this day. Now, we're not talking about nations today in the church. We want the nations to come to Christ. We're talking about steering clear of worldliness. Anything that's going to distract us from that straight and narrow path following the Lord. That's where true fulfillment. That's where happiness. That's where satisfaction lies. Young people, we don't want to make heroes of those people whose lifestyle blasphemes God. And there are plenty of them out there. The last one, devotion. Obedience, separation, devotion. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Love alone can unify the diverse family of the redeemed. Suppose we were at a church in San Antonio and we had all the international students here that the Breslowskis bring sometimes. What in the world is going to unify as diverse a group as that? It's going to be only what? Love. The love of Christ. And that's what we want to show these people today. But we want to be sure that we're not led off into some of their beliefs. How do we do this devotion? Give prayer, Bible study family worship, priority over all that other stuff. Is Little League important? Oh, yeah, it's important. You learn some good things there, teamwork. But these things are of the utmost importance. Finally, we have a reminder now, looking toward the future, envisioning the future. And Joshua says, Now, behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you, has failed. All has been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. And and it shall come about that just as all these good words which the Lord spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he destroyed you from this good land. And then he goes on to talk about some things there. We don't want that. We want a purpose to demonstrate our love for God and for others. Here is Charles Wordworth's hymn, which is a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13. Alan Redpath uses it at the close of his chapter. Gracious Spirit, Holy Ghost, taught by Thee, we covet most of Thy gifts at Pentecost, holy, heavenly love. Faith that mountains could remove, tongues on earth or heaven above. Knowledge, all things empty, prove without heavenly love. Love is kind and suffers long. Love is meek and thinks no wrong. Love than death itself more strong. Therefore, give us love. Prophecy will fade away, melting in the light of day. Love will ever with us stay. Therefore, give us love. Faith and hope and love we see joining hand in hand again. But the greatest of the three is love. And the best is love. From the overshadowing of thy gold and silver wing shed on us who to thee cling holy heavenly love. Next week's homework. Do an act of love for someone outside your family. Now some of you do that all the time so it's no problem. But that's our assignment. Do an act of love for someone outside your family. Let's pray. We thank you Heavenly Father that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son. And we want to not only profess profess our belief in you, we want to live it out. We want people to see that we follow the Christ. We thank you for your grace that enables us to do that. Uh, Lord, we want to be accurate in our handling of the Word of Truth. And we pray as we study together, as we teach, that uh, we might go home in the afternoon and look in the Scripture and see if what has been said on Sunday morning is true. Uh, Lord, we want to teach our families. We ask you to give us more grace as we respond to the grace we've been given. Thank you for this excellent review of the Old Testament and what you're doing in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we pray that we might see in their lives lessons that we would learn for today. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.